0: I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And I hope everyone is staying safe and well. Many of the enduring features of the pandemic are socioeconomic. So it isn't a stretch to say that the pandemic has reshaped almost everything everything about how we live and how we work, about what we consume and how we interact with one another. In other words, it's redefined our whole notion of what community represents. Which is why in the midst of the pandemic, I reached out to Dr. Raghuram Rajan. I'd read his latest book, The Third Pillar, how the state and markets are leaving communities behind when it first came out mid last year. And I was immediately struck by the fact that Dr. Rajang, an economist who's lived inside some of the most market-focused institutions, is talking about the value and fragility of community. The book is as much about political economy as it is a sociological inquiry into the non-cognitive factors that we depend on communities to provide and teach us. Things like education, identity, social skills, norms, and values. And so we talk about how the state, markets, and the community have fared throughout the pandemic, what forces like technology are doing to reshape community, and why addressing inequality needs to be done in a way that doesn't simply lever up the system again. I also want to highlight that I'm giving away three copies of The Third Pillar to the best comments to this episode on social media, so just be sure to tag me and the podcast. Dr. Raghuram Rajan is professor of finance at University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He was the 23rd governor of the Reserve Bank of India from 2013 to 2016. Between 2003 and 2006, Dr. Rajan was chief economist and director of research at the IMF. Dr. Rajan's research interests are in banking, corporate finance, and economic development, especially the role finance plays in it. And last, his books include Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy, and, of course, The Third Pillar, How the State and Markets Are Leaving Communities Behind. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rajan. It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for the time. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Great. So I want to begin with one of the Aspects I find most notable in your books, particularly the last book, The Third Pillar, which is the attention you give to non-cognitive factors, factors like education, identity, values, and social skills. So I'm wondering, what made you, someone who's lived inside some of the, frankly, most market-focused institutions, begin to examine the role of the community through not just an economist's lens, but also that of a sociologist?
1: Well, great question. Uh, you know, the University of Chicago is a really big tent, and uh, you know, often it's associated with the the market view, uh, of course, uh, led by economists like Milton Friedman. But uh, uh, we're not uh, a prayer house. We don't we don't sort of uh, uh, pray at the altar of Milton Friedman or or, or George Stigler. Um, it would not be a university if it didn't uh, explore new ideas. And of course, the University of Chicago has a great uh, sort of legacy in sociology, uh, including the study of communities in Chicago itself. So uh, I wasn't uh, coming into this uh, uh, cold, but but certainly uh, it was a learning experience. The, the reality is the Massive failures in in markets uh both during the global financial crisis, and to some extent uh you know the beginning of this pandemic makes you wonder whether uh you know you should be exploring a lot more of course, we are also seeing political dysfunction across the industrial world. There was a sense for some time that we had uh, you know achieved a system that uh, worked reasonably for many. Uh, with the liberal market system, and we are seeing that it has its uh, fault lines, its fragilities. So this combination of both crises as well as political dysfunction makes you wonder what's going wrong, and you know you need, need to explore all possible causes. That's why this this branching
0: out. How much did your experience at the IMF and and probably more more relevant is sort of the the. Bank of India, how much did that lend to this thesis around community?
1: Well, um, India, uh, you know, has had a historical debate about these issues. Uh, At the time of independence, Gandhi was very firm in saying India lives in its villages. Uh, We should focus on uh, empowering the villages and having more of a village economy. Um, Nehru, the other great uh, uh, founder of modern India, uh, was very much concerned about keeping the country together, about modernizing the country, and he felt that all that could be done better from a more centralized government. Uh, there was a third factor, which was uh, uh, Dr. Ambedkar, who was the architect of the constitution. Ambedkar was very much along the line. He, he was a person from a what is today called a scheduled caste, that is one of the castes that were considered lower on the status uh, spectrum. And he thought that the communities, the local village, uh, was really an oppressive system which kept people like him down and wanted the more cosmopolitan universal values in the city. And, you know, these kinds of debates are still playing out uh, uh, in in many countries of the world. Uh, Decentralization is something a lot of people talk about as useful to empowering people, but the costs of decentralization sometimes are seen as fragmentation of uh, of national unity and sometimes as uh, a way to uh, empower uh, the segregationists, uh, so to speak. So uh, this debate is ongoing. I think we can revisit it given the advances we have in technology, given the changes in the world. um, uh, There is a reason to think about the community once again as a center for activity and we can make it work better than we could in the past.
0: Yeah, I certainly want to sort of examine the value or the place and the role of community in the context of the pandemic. But first, let's go to sort of the central thesis of uh, the third pillar. Why is community so important? Why has it been so often overlooked by the academic and practitioner community?
1: So think about the three pillars, right? Uh, The first pillar, uh, let's say, is, is markets, the economic pillar. And the second pillar is the state, the political pillar. And much of the 20th century was debates about how much market, how much state. And, you know, the uh, impression is, by and large, markets won out. Reality is that uh, markets and the state grow together. If you look at rich countries, they have very big states also as a fraction of GDP, lots of bureaucrats, lots of uh, state spending, often because, one, markets... uh, Uh, tend to be volatile to buffer the markets. You need a whole social security system. You need many forms of, uh, of insurance. And second... Markets, when they spread, like to have common governance. So as the market spreads across the nation, it's much harder to have each local market governed by the community. Instead, powers get taken away from the community to the national arena. Example, uh, banks used to be regulated by the towns they used to be located in in the United States. Um, As, you know, uh, banks spread across the state, it was regulated at the state Eventually, as they went uh, across the nation, they were regulated uh, by the nation's capital. And today, you know, many banks, in, uh, the regulations for banks are set in Basel, um, away from any national capital they're sent internationally. So the point here is that the two pillars are symbiotic, they grow together, but they crowd out the third pillar, which is the social aspect of the community, the more more actions take place in the market the more you uh, instead of uh, you know getting your uh, neighbor's uh, children to look after your kids to babysit your kids you hire a professional babysitter from an agency because those agent the agency has strong credentials the ties between neighbors break down so expanding markets tend to come at the expense of some community ties you no longer go to your neighbor for midwife services when you're uh, when uh, when the woman in the house has has a child instead you go to the hospital uh, but similarly um, as markets grow governments also grow powers go out of the community to the national arena a uh, classic example here is the european union where you know it's absorbing a lot of powers in order to create a uniform, homogeneous market across the union. In fact, this was one of the biggest concerns in the Brexit movement. Let's take control back because too much has migrated away. Not just control back from Brussels, but control back from London. So the the central thesis is the community has weakened, but at a time that it has become really important to provide people the skills and the abilities to compete in this uh, in this integrated global economy, a lot depends on the community. Your schools, the quality of your schools depend on the community you're in. The quality of community colleges depends on that. Safety uh, around your neighborhood depends on that. The kinds of values kids absorb depends on that. So, so much depends on the community, but the community itself is atrophying. Uh, and of course, the community is important for one more problem in the future, which is loneliness. More and more people are growing old without a family. Um, they've got divorced, Their f- children have moved away, and loneliness is increasingly a disease. And again, without a community, uh, we don't have much support. Now, that's, that's the reason why I think it's very important to focus back on the community to ensure a more level playing field for people starting out and to ensure some support um, at the end of life for uh, many people who don't have it today.
0: Does that mean it's it's effectively a structural problem, A sort of community being the weakest pillar among these? You know, the markets will always sort of have an inherent nature to concentrate wealth. The state will always look to sort of expand welfare services. And in those respects, what is the sort of inherent nature of community?
1: It is always under threat. That's that's exactly right, because there's a natural logic to the other two. Now, the community depends to some extent on people missing out on the social aspect of life and constantly reinventing new ways of getting together, right? I mean, for example, in many uh, U.S. neighborhoods, um, it turns out that uh, the expansion of markets, the expansion of the state, Um, The anonymity uh, of city life means uh, you often don't know your neighbors. Well, how do you reconnect? Well, you start trying to reconnect through whatever uh, organizations you have. Sometimes you set up new ones. Sometimes you make uh, older ones work uh, for you. So schools are an important source for people to get together uh, in 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 uh, some of these uh, urban communities in the United States, you meet other kids' parents. You start socializing with them. Uh, you sort of, uh, you know, grow up with them as your kids grow up through schools. And, and that becomes a network uh, that that creates stronger neighborhood links uh, and so on. So um, there are a variety of ways, but it is true that, uh, you know, the community is probably the most fragile pillar, which is one reason why I emphasize in the book, we have to actively reform in order to strengthen our communities today as much as inequality of uh, of skills and therefore inequality of incomes is, is an important factor in the kind of fractures I- that are emerging in our society, you know, inequality of place is also hugely important, as you well understand in England, with the uh, you know, concern today about leveling up, uh, that's because so much activity, so much wealth is in London, but so much opportunity to improve yourself is also in London while those opportunities have, uh, have vanished in other places. Again, um, when we come to the pandemic, there are some silver linings in what we've learned from the pandemic, which will hopefully equalize some of these differences across places.
0: Yeah, I, I do. It's a great segue into that, because I, I do think that, I mean, the pandemic as well as the, uh, the recent U.S. election, um, they both seem like powerful opportunities to reflect and examine on the resilience and fragility of each of these pillars, especially community. So can you talk about sort of in the context of the pandemic as a stress test effectively for these three pillars? What surprised you? Sort of looking back, I guess I would say that communities in the face of a federal government that has been unwilling slash unable to respond to the pandemic, that communities would seem to have been a bit more resilient than people think, no?
1: Absolutely, I think that uh, first look across countries, um, which countries have been more successful in dealing with the pandemic? Often, it is commu- uh, it is uh, countries that have, you know, found the right mix of centralized decision making and decentralized decision making, but who also have strong communities to fill in the gaps, the holes left by the market and the state. Um, you know, we all know that China has been really successful. Uh, of course, there have been other uh, North Asian countries like Taiwan and Korea that have also been successful in containing the pandemic. But one of the important factors in China has been community activism. Uh, you know, each community set up its own monitoring board to see who had been flagged uh, for you know having uh, having the virus or being in contact and uh you know to some extent and this some people may find extremely intrusive perhaps it is but in the face of a pandemic you had neighborhood watch societies making sure those who were flagged were in fact staying at home and quarantining and not coming out so that was one example of the community enforcing certain norms of behavior uh but in other communities uh in in england in the in the us uh, you know kids young younger people got together to uh, essentially do the shopping for all the elderly, saying, look, we don't want you to go out and risk getting uh, getting, uh, infected. Uh, Less of a danger for us. Uh, We're gonna go do your shopping. So delivery services like this started up uh, entirely voluntarily. In India, a huge number of migrants uh, sort of uh, were left without support in the cities. uh, When there was a lockdown, they started walking to the villages Uh, Lots of voluntary organizations sort of stepped up at that point uh, to sort of remedy the failure of government by providing these migrants with services, with food, uh, uh, you know, with with support as they walk back to their villages. So these are all uh, great examples uh, of um, people stepping up to fill in the gaps there are other factors in the pandemic which are are also worth noting. That um, you know, um, the uh, in in countries like South Korea, in countries like uh, uh, Germany, um, the central government basically set broad norms on how to deal with the pandemic, what kind of triggers, et cetera, and maybe uh, broader purchasing of uh, of PPE and allocating but the localities the communities uh, the the states the regions they decided uh, how the lockout patterns would be uh, lockdown patterns would be depending on the kind of people they had uh, and the necessities the 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 work uh, work habits et cetera. so uh, there you had the right mix of centralization and decentralization Something I talk uh, about a lot in the book, the importance of uh, of following the principle of subsidiarity, push decisions down to the lowest level where they can be taken effectively because uh, that gives people a sense of ownership, a sense of empowerment. They will do more when they know they're in charge of their future. than when you take away everything from them and say, thou shalt obey, uh, the commands come on high from on high, without any sense of what the local is about. So uh, that all, we, we're learning all this from from watching what's happened in the pandemic, it can be applied more broadly. But this the silver lining I wanted to point to is that we've also learned to work at a distance. Certainly in industrial countries, um, you know, we certainly resent being on video conferences all day. But uh, the alternative of uh, a one hour, one and a half hour commute in the morning to office and back, even in normal times, uh, maybe we will learn to work more in a dispersed way. More towns uh, 100 miles, 200 miles from uh, London uh, will have people with uh, relatively high incomes who go in once a week to their offices, uh, if at all. And as a result, not only do the cities get more decongested, but you get a lot more um, economic value, uh, incomes moving to places uh, some distance away. My hope is that what we've learned about doing services at a distance helps us spread economic activity far more. And that's gonna be very useful for spreading uh, strong communities.
0: Yeah, it it certainly seems that the pandemic has primed or uh, call it reactivated the role of the community in, in different ways. But what do you think about the other pillar markets, and we conflate the economy and markets in that but one thing seems incredibly clear, there's a clear divergence between sort of markets and the real economy. And unfortunately, what that means for amplifying, in many cases, inequality.
1: It is certainly true that equity markets seem to be, you know, touching new highs every day uh, across the world, not just in industrial countries. And, um, you know, to some extent, um, this is a function of government and uh, central bank support, right? What we saw in the beginning of the pandemic is every large central bank basically, you uh, pulled out all stops in trying to help um, businesses survive by cutting interest rates to the bone, expanding credit. Governments also expanded credit guarantees. Uh, A huge amount of support has been given uh, to the real economy uh, to try and build a bridge across the pandemic. Now, what that has meant is that uh, given that support is freely available to everyone for the most part, um, the most capable firms, the firms that have been strongest, uh, we know they're going to survive for a long time. We know they're profitable. And so when we are discounting their profits at the low interest rates that prevail, um, you know, their stock price goes through the roof. And, and so, uh, um, you know also the sinister aspect of that is the smaller firms in the industry are going to have a harder time surviving, and so uh, that's going to give more space for the large firms to expand the more efficient firms, the firms that have figured figured out new technologies of uh, improving their uh, their work uh, processes during the pandemic. So uh, there is an element of um, you know uh, a very strong element of uh, the pandemic. Uh, increasing inequality between firms, making these stronger firms even stronger. A lot of the inequality between people is actually an inequality between firms. If you work at Google, you're very well paid. If you work at the local laundry shop, you're not very well paid. And there is a huge difference between those two. Um, so so it is going to exacerbate inequalities. It is going to, I mean, we've seen that, uh, you know, the educated, the skilled Uh, In service industries uh, can work remotely far from any concern about being infected, while frontline workers, of course, are in day to day contact with it so uh, both inequality as well as risks are exacerbated by this 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 crisis for sure. I also think that, that uh, you know, we, we haven't yet seen the worst damage that the pandemic has done to small and medium enterprises, et cetera. It's been masked a little bit by the extent of support that has emerged. Of course, we all know small businesses that have closed, but my sense is, that if that support is removed, uh, a lot more damage uh, could occur, will be seen, and certainly is occurring in emerging markets because the support there has been lower. So um, this pandemic is by no means over, and the damage it has done is by no means fully out out there, and it has exacerbated inequalities, which is one reason that every one of us should be concerned Hmm. that when we get over this, Uh, it's not over yet. There's a lot more work to be done
0: one of the clear messages in the third pillar is that rising inequality is undermining communities. You've said that. But to go back to your earlier book, Fault Lines, um, which I really enjoyed, but you have a great chapter in there called Let Them Eat Credit. Uh, and you note that the global debt problem was caused by low and medium skilled workers pay, lagging inflation because of globalization and computerization. And, and to maintain lifestyles, credit was needed to effectively fill in the gap with inflation, which is the source ultimately of the debt bubble. And I'm wondering how you sort of build on that going forward in terms of seeing a sustainable solution. In other words, how do we make Western democratic society sustainable in the face of so much inequality without having to lever up the system?
1: It's a, it's a profound question because um, I do think we are in danger of uh, going from crisis to crisis as we use debt to paper over problems. Uh, we used it in the um, in the pre-global financial crisis, um, you know, um, that chapter, Let Them Eat Credit, was essentially saying housing uh, was seen as a way to substitute for the lack of good jobs by giving people a- an ATM, uh, um, a house which they could borrow off as house prices increased, And uh, it was thought this was, you know, there was no uh, end to this. It could go on forever. Well, it went on for a long time until house prices plummeted and then it it all came crashing down and home ownership actually went down after that. Um, So uh, I think we move from unsustainable solution to unsustainable solution if we don't tackle the underlying problem. So the uh, current Unsustainable solution is to pile on more and more debt onto government balance sheets, assuming, uh, as some of our uh, economist friends tell us, there's no limit to how much you need to borrow. Just uh, put it on the central bank, and they'll finance everything. Uh, you know, don't worry, be happy until we get full employment. You can go on and on uh, doing this. Well, you know, emerging markets have tried that, and it has come to a sorry end. Uh, And I have no doubt that industrial countries will try it, but without, uh, especially given the level of political dysfunction that is emerging, uh, it is quite possible that, uh, you know, over time, not now, but over time, as we spend more and run larger deficits, uh, there is a time when markets rebel and uh, don't absorb any more government debt. Uh, We don't want to test that. And, And so I think it's high time that we understood that in industrial countries there are structural problems. Uh, Now, this is jargon for saying, you know, you can't fix these by more stimulus. Uh, In the same way as developing countries or emerging markets don't grow by more stimulus, they grow by reforming themselves, by making it possible for more people to benefit from modern economies. And I think what has happened in industrial countries is what used to be the case, most people had good jobs, could benefit from the modern economy, has has, uh, sort of gone uh, regressed. And today, uh, there's uh, many people who can't participate in uh, in the labor market, don't have good jobs, don't have any job, and have given up any hope of getting those jobs. And that uh, group of people often centers in, uh, in places far from the big cities, uh, there are many uh, sort of islands uh, of hopelessness. And if we don't fix that, uh, we're not going to get the sustainable growth. Uh, we're always going to be dependent on huge amounts of stimulus, on huge amounts of debt-fueled stimulus, and that's also unsustainable eventually. So fix the problem. And the problem is really of equipping every citizen with the capabilities that allow them to participate. And capabilities are not just education and so on. It means good health care. It means good child support. It means uh, the ability to access your job at relatively uh, short distance, at low cost. You don't have to travel two, two hours to get to your job. I mean, those are so many things we could work on. To make it possible for more people to have a sustainable living, and if we don't do that, uh, I mean, we could have a, a pretty um, difficult future. Yeah.
0: How do you overlay technology then? You know, as a force across these three pillars, but particularly community. Uh, and and I guess we we've talked about this a little bit, but how do you how do you think about the trade offs that we are making? Um, so, for instance. Um, you know, you, you find a higher use of of Amazon, for instance, you know, to, to, to distance rather than go to the store. Um, in some cases, stores are closed, but that comes at a cost of, you know, obviously, sometimes at local unemployment, track and trace applications, you know, there's a trade-off between sort of safety and potentially the cost of data privacy, privacy rights. I think you've spoken before about Uber and sort of the gig economy and, and the long-term implications of that
1: technology by itself often is relatively neutral even dynamite right uh, um, as uh, i don't remember who said it but but nevertheless i didn't say it somebody else <laughs> said it first which is that uh, you know dynamite has uh, the potential for great good right we can move mountains and build roads uh, across them uh, tunnels through them but we can also you know blow up our neighbor's house, and uh, so there's good and bad embedded in dynamite. It depends on, on the user and their intent, as well as protections to make sure it doesn't get into the hands of the loonies. Um, so I think that's true of every technology. And and what we need to ask ourselves is, is there a way we can shape the use of technology uh, towards uh, the better? rather than the worst now one has to be very careful here because often uh the value of technology comes from serendipity right uh, the uh inventor thinking thinking and suddenly discovering a use which we hadn't thought of before uh you know those uh what's a stick stick uh, stick on uh notes uh sticky notes is an example uh, earlier it was thought you know what's the use of this uh this gum which doesn't quite stick well <laughs> it was very useful in temporary notes that you want to stick on uh, on on your um uh, blackboard to remind you of doing uh, to do something or the other so i mean there's a lot of serendipity involved in technology so you don't want to constrain it too much by rules but we certainly know that it can be used for the good as well as for the bad so you just mentioned amazon yes It crowds out your local store and uh, increasingly, I mean, of course, so many bookstores have closed because you can order the book more cheaply on Amazon. At the same time, uh, Amazon offers opportunities, Amazon and whatever these big platforms are, offer opportunities for small sellers, uh, small producers to say, look, can um, um, can I sell to a much bigger world? It offers the opportunity for a lot of niche producers. Uh, I saw yesterday this example of this Korean manufacturer of uh, of chalk, you know, the, the the chalk you use on the on the chalkboard. Uh, well, it's very uh, good chalk um, with some you know uh, fancy technology, but but handmade, uh, uh, using fairly simple equipment. Um, it's just a material which is clever. And it's chalk that doesn't crumble, that doesn't break and has a worldwide market simply because they have access to advertising, et cetera. And uh, so the, this very small outfit in Korea sells to the world, lots of physicists and mathematicians across the world who like to fill their boards with uh, with various kinds of hieroglyphics, uh, basically um, uh, buy this chalk. So that's an example of where technology has helped small enterprises reach out, Mike, carpet maker in in Kashmir can sell carpets to the rest of the world by just advertising. So long as there's an intermediary who can vouch for the fact, when they get the money from you, the carpet, in fact, will be sent. So uh, there are lots of possibilities. um, And what we need to do is enhance the possibilities learning. I mean, one of the things we've learned during the pandemic, I can teach my course, which I teach at the University of Chicago's Booth School, I can teach it online uh, uh, with, I would say, 90% effectiveness, not not 100%. It's always better to be in class. Uh, as a teacher, you get feedback. You see what people are saying. You see them going to sleep, so you know how to be- that it's time to be a little more interesting. At the same time, the students sort of thrive on each other, uh, you know, on uh, the comments each other makes and so on. So a classroom experience cannot be fully replicated. But you can get eighty to ninety percent there, and so how much <clears throat> how many more students can we teach if in fact that is the case at a high level? Mm-hmm. So these are all you know the good side and the bad side of technology and, and I think it can be as much a solution as it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me add one last point here. I mean, we talked about uh, technology and the pillars I've talked about technology and the community um, mm-hmm. The community can be stronger. Because it can engage more people in the community through technology, social media. I send out something saying, look, we're all getting together in the park to clean it up. Volunteers, please come. Okay. A number of young people show up. They build bonds in that. That's one one way. The There is an app called the C-Click Fix app, which I talk about in the book. I see a pothole, I can take a photo of it, it goes onto the community website and stays there until the officials in the community fix it. That gives me a way of monitoring. Are they on the job? or Are they goofing off? Um, and, you know, there's so many ways you can engage, get engagement, but also control. Similarly, if the uh, state government or the federal government sends funds into the community... We can monitor how those funds are used. Uh, they can monitor how the funds are used lightly by, by checking what's going on. So technology allows us so much more. And, uh, you know, it's uh, we shouldn't dismiss the old, oh, the, it won't work because community officials are corrupt. We're going to get more segregation, this, that. Uh, we can make it work better.
0: One of history's lessons, as told by the book, seems to be that backlashes are inevitable, whether it's against overreach by the state or too much monopolization in the markets. And I'm just wondering, how do you see a future backlash developing this time around, particularly, you know, when we talk about technology playing such a powerful role? And and I'm wondering, to what degree do you sort of look back, particularly around the global financial crisis and sort of not necessarily technology, but financialization of the financial system, you know, as a force by itself? And the fact that we didn't really see a backlash then against the markets. And wh- what's to say there will be, you know, this time around?
1: Well, we did see during the global, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, certainly a backlash against bankers. I can, I can watch for that because I, I see uh, at the University of Chicago's Booth School, um, we used to send a lot of kids to Wall Street um, now we don't. A um, lot more of our kids, uh, our MBA students, go to um, business school, uh, to um, consulting firms, but also to um, uh, entrepreneurships, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and a number of them are now into social enterprise. So, um, you know, things do change. Uh, the poor image of bankers does seem to have had a longer term effect on people's choice of careers etc and, and you saw this with the great depression also uh, that it did change uh, both the career prospects as well as the size of the financial community at that time but i think the bigger backlash in recent times has has been has spread from the bankers to trade and and you can see it in country after country with more protectionist measures. And this is, to my mind, is very, very worrisome because uh, some of the uh, most important challenges we have, such as aging populations, uh, the consequences of those challenges can only be solved if we maintain a largely integrated world. Um, a, if you look at Japan, the first developed country which has aged Really rapidly, you see how dependent uh, Japan is on uh, exporting to the world now uh, for continued growth because, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, demand domestically is weaker than it used to be uh, when it had a young growing, younger growing population. Uh, so I, I think there is a reason to maintain the kind of open world that we have. But uh, the uh, p- what, what I think is important is to separate the economic openness, which is very useful, from requiring political u- uniformity, which then uh, disempowers people politically, right? Uh, and it seems to me that uh, what we need is to allow as much political differences, as much... Uh, regulatory differences uh, legal differences between countries as we can while maintaining a largely common market the uh, the backlash that you talk about is often i see these global markets but i also see that i'm totally disempowered uh, i can't do anything about um, you know the markets i can't do anything about my local regulation. I have to accept everything uh, simply because it's uh, it's to, I'm told this is necessary to sustain those markets. Well, again, it seems to me that technology allows us to actually deal with variety far better. Firms can use technology to, you know, distinguish products across places. Uh, recognize there may be different taxes if they work in different jurisdictions it can all be done at relatively low cost. So today we don't need the homogeneity that is emphasized so much as we used to in the past. We can allow a lot more differences because of technology. And that is why I think uh, we can sort of avoid the backlash if we empower more. And that means more localization, uh, less uniformity.
0: Got it. So last question. I've heard you speak a little bit about addressing climate change. And I'm wondering, given your IMF experience and your central bank experience, how do you think about the role of conditionality with, quote, green strings attached? I've seen that, you know, increasingly sort of effectively climate related conditionality in sort of lending terms. The EU, both the EIB and the ECB seem to be increasingly headed in this Direction within the EU recovery plan, but I'm wondering how do you balance lessons learned, particularly on the IMF side, against the urgency of climate action? So first, I think that
1: uh, climate change is uh, you know virtually upon us. It really is very important to tackle it. We need to do everything we can, and it implies uh, not just. You know, uh, using new technologies, but also changes in consumption behavior and so on. All of us have to learn to be more frugal of resources uh, and uh, and more careful. It's I mean, all that is is really important. I do worry though that I'm a great believer in in uh, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and onto, you know, fill in the blanks, uh, things that are are on the other side. Um, You know, in some of this conditionality, uh, you're lending to weak countries, you're lending to weak firms. And uh, these are all already firms that find it hard to compete in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And if on top of that, you say thou shalt go green, greener than your competitors, uh I mean to the extent that there is a correlation between going green and uh you know lower costs et cetera absolutely let's 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 impose that kind of conditionality. It works for them it works uh for the lender it's it's all good, but to the extent it involves costs and and one of the dangers is sometimes we act as if going green has no cost it's all it's you know you do well by doing good. No, sometimes it's costly to do good. And, uh, and so we must recognize that, well, to the extent it has costs, you're trying to do two things at the same time. One, resurrect this company, which is failing, keeping jobs alive, but you're imposing a whole new set of costs on it by saying, thou shalt go green while you're doing that. You may actually create an uncomparative company, which will die as soon as you withdraw any support. So are you prepared to constantly keep it on life support? Well, if you're not, don't impose too many conditions on it while reviving it. Let it figure out how to revive itself, Um, but maybe think about imposing conditions on the industry, change the regulation. I am very much against doing things through the back door. Let's constrain climate, uh, uh, you know, coal financing by, you know, shaming the banks. Uh, I think there's a much more direct way. Yes, it's harder. But let's try and get that international agreement which says, uh, you know, coal is bad. We need to restrict it. Um, Let's try and put, uh, you know, uh, together a global agreement. Now, the problem is coal right now is being used by some of the poorer countries. Leave China aside. Some of the poorer countries are using coal. When you ban coal financing, you make it much harder for them uh, uh, to to uh, sort of grow, in the long run, there's a trade-off. You could pay them in ways so that they go green, they go to wind energy, they go to um, you know to uh, solar. But if you use the financing route, you you're actually constraining them from outside without giving them any alternative. And this seems to me very unfair and unequal. So I would argue that whenever we use these other methods, we should see how it's working, who it's hurting, and are there better ways that we can negotiate a broader agreement which can get us there uh, in, in, in a more equitable way. So that, that my sense is, yeah, do it when, it when it works for all, be careful about it when it imposes more costs, especially when you're imposing it on relatively weak agents.
0: So it's been fascinating to discuss how the three pillars, i.e. the state, the market, and the community have fared through the pandemic, why the value of community is so vital, and what needs to be considered towards rebalancing this equilibrium. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and thoughts. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Dr. Raghuram Rajan, professor of finance at University of Chicago Booth School of Business and former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Dr. Rajan. Thank you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, Please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell@man.com.